correlation between interest rates and the value premium. Right. Like <laughs> that ever. It's never oh happened God. ever. Well, as you know, I'm, you can see I'm long gold. So Wait, did he bring a mustache for me too? Now that I'm not wearing a hat, I, I feel the, the tight. I feel like Beetlejuice. So put your hat on. Nah, I can't rock the hat with the turtleneck. Why? I'm just because that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> that's, I'm glad that's, to know where you draw the line. I'm just saying. I didn't. I didn't feel how. Right Why can't you wear a hat? I didn't feel Only how small my head was. I mean, you can wear a fedora with this outfit, but. Why can't I wear a hat? Yeah. You can't rock. Just stop. We're wearing the headphones. So doesn't matter. I went to the cellar two weeks ago or whatever. I, I told you, and the show wasn't great. It's like a Who six. Was on? Nobody that I. Nobody. I mean, one of the hosts who's there, who's a regular. But there was one good line, and like you can't. I mean, as long as you get a few good laughs, it's a success in my, you know. This one guy came on stage and said, "Last year was rough for me. I was quarantining in my parents' basement. Then the, another pandemic hit." <laughs> <laughs> How long have they been doing live shows at comedy I think clubs? Just a few weeks. I don't think it's. I think it's like relatively new. But are any of the big guys coming out yet or no? Well, I saw I saw a 7 o'clock show, so I knew there wasn't going to be anybody. Chappelle was here a few weeks ago oh, at yeah? the stand. They sent an email out, and they said, like, if you want tickets, and within 30 seconds, they were all gone. I saw Chappelle at Foo Fighters sing uh, Radiohead cover. It was, like, the craziest, weirdest thing ever. Dave Chappelle was singing Dave Chappelle, Radiohead So Dave Chappelle and Dave Grohl co-hosted SNL okay. in November or something. So I guess they made friends. So uh, in the middle of the Foo Fighters show, they don't really do a lot of covers. Like they did a Queen cover to let Taylor Hawkins sing a song. And then they had like another cover. They're like, we're going to do one more cover. And Dave Chappelle comes out and does Creep. And Was it good? It was like not bad. It was like surprisingly not bad. Was he smoking a cigarette during the singing? No, yes. but he was taking it seriously. Like he was hitting notes. No, and literally, I think he did have a joint. Oh, uh, maybe. Or a cigarette. Know. Yeah. The audience loved it. My, uh, like half the people were like, wait, what's going on now? And then once he started, they were like, oh, he's really doing this. I can't believe right. he's actually doing this. Dan, do you like concerts? Oh, yeah. Who doesn't like concerts? Me. Yes, you do. I've been to shows with you. You like it. Well. You're not excited to go to one, but when you go to one, you're into it. No, I thought I liked concerts until the last concert. Well, what happened to the last concert? I saw, were you there? Separately, you were there. Uh, Bush and live at Jones Beach. That was a good show. That was a good show. But I don't know. I just <laughs> I like the idea of it more than I Wait, actually I'm like sorry. the experience. Bush and live. That's your. That's what you're going to judge concerts based yes. off. Of? Like that's nothing like, against them, but like. Well, for me, that's like exciting because I was like my my youth. Right. You know. If um, you if you went if you went to the show that I just went to, you would have walked out of there like a different person, like. No, because I get I get like self conscious in big crowds. I think I don't know what to do with my head. Nobody would be looking. I feel like at you. bobbing too much. I, well, I know that. I know nobody's actually looking. But all right, not a concert guy. Anyhow. But you like sporting events, yeah. I'm calling friends. Episode four. You don't have a drink. Five. You, you don't need a drink. Not right now. Good. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Just want. I don't. I want you to stay hydrated. Let's take a break. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, the compounded friends. Best financial podcast in existence, I think, like conservatively speaking. Uh, Michael Batnick is here. John Grayson is here. Duncan's here. And uh, our friend, Dan McMurtry, is here. And if you're a Twitter guy, you definitely know Dan's alter ego, Super Mugatu. Um, and Dan is launching a Substack, And we're going to talk about that in a little while. We have so much to get into. I won't delay any longer. Um, let's, let's roll that music. 
Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How do hedge funds invest outside the market without touching Bitcoin or meme stocks? They invest in blue chip art, an overlooked asset class that is expected to grow by over $900 billion in the next five years. Contemporary art prices rose 14% per year from 1995 through 2020, so it's no surprise that over half of ultra-high net worth investors allocate over 10% of their portfolio to art. Thanks to Masterworks.io, you can invest in multi-million dollar works by artists like Banksy and Warhol for a fraction of the entry price. Both Michael and our guest from week one, Packy McCormick, have already invested in art on the Masterworks.io platform. We've partnered with Masterworks to let the Compound and Friends listeners skip their wait list by going to masterworks.io slash compound today. You know, actually, actually, Dan is Super Mugatu's alter ego. You're really, you're really Super Mugatu. Well, yeah, I, I can't tell anymore. It depends on how much time you spend on Twitter versus off in a given day. How much, how much of you are one versus the other? It's like Robert Downey in uh, Traffic Thunder, but like much lower stakes. <laughs> just I have no idea who I am anymore. I'm just this Twitter I saw that character. one. I saw that one in theater. All right, this is, this, I, I don't want to open the show like reading something, but. Too late. Yeah, sorry. Mark, and that's how I'm, I'm pre-apologizing. Mark Andreessen did this interview with Noah Smith and they went wide and deep and I thought it was, it was excellent. And Andreessen made this really interesting comment on his increasing skepticism that incumbents can adapt. So there was this narrative, I think, that people thought that all of this new technology, that the IBMs of the world were going to adapt this and be pulled forward. Instead, it seems like the train has left the station and these companies can't, ca- can't catch up. So one of the things he said was, uh, I used to think time would ameliorate this as the world adapts to software, but the pattern seems to be intensifying. A good test for how seriously an incumbent is taking software is the percent of the top 100 executives and managers with computer science degrees. For a typical tech startup, the answer might be 50 to 70%. For a typical incumbent, the answer might be more like 5 to 7%. This is a huge gap in software knowledge and skill, and you could see it play out every day across many industries. So who, who does this affect? Like uh, incumbent companies and industries that are now competing with technology companies where they weren't five years ago? I'm thinking less of the less of a business angle and more of a stock angle and how people view like bucketing companies. Can they catch up? Where do we put money? Dan, how do you view this topic? I just think company culture is a huge issue. It can be a really big weapon or a really big detriment. And when you're talking about pivoting culture, you're ultimately talking about firing a lot of people, stepping on a lot of toes. It's it, And you have this issue of, you know, the things your existing clients want are not necessarily things your new clients are going to want. There's so many little frictions and you have to take a massive hit in the short term. And I just don't think if you're a public company, especially you're in a position to, you know, you just can't take, this isn't like a one quarter hit. This is like, we're going to have bad earnings for three years and then maybe something comes out of it. I just don't know very many companies that can really make that shift. And Jason was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy and he said, this is your golden opportunity. Everything you do now, you could say because of COVID. Like, like if you're a, right. if you're a public company and you've been worried about continuity for years and years and years, 
you now have like this very, very short window to throw a lot of shit out and start over with a lot of other stuff, make really big investments and just say, because of COVID. And there's probably, I don't know, a hundred companies I could think of that are doing some version of that. I don't know how drastically, um, but I have to believe that we're going to see the results of that in some of the incumbent companies as time goes on. Yeah. Did you see the Gavin Baker had a, I don't know if it was a medium or subsec or something, but one of the things he was talking about was in retailers, you had a lot of companies who for years, you know, outside shareholders said, look, you need to do this omni-channel thing. You need to do e-commerce. And it was hard at a board letter because you were going to kill the, you know, uh, golden goose to maybe get something out of it. Cannibalize your, your existing right? business. Yeah. And they, and then they had to do something during COVID just to survive. And the point he made that I think was really smart was all of a sudden – the board conversation wasn't, hey, this is going to really hurt, but it might be good. The board conversation was, this is really working. They were getting data back in that customers like this, and they, they could actually – they actually had hard data they could use to justify this is going to be good for your business. So one of the things I think is, is hard is for tech companies, whenever they do a tech thing, there's this positive loop. Like every customers love it. Investors love it. They're getting cheaper money. They're getting more customers. If, you know – making up a random, you know, if Berkshire Hathaway launches Berkshire Hathaway coin, that actually might work, but it would be really weird, right? Um, and so you have this issue of like negative feedback versus positive feedback. And he made this great point about the companies that started that positive feedback thing during COVID now kind of have license to really take advantage of exactly that dynamic. I think if you if you haven't pivoted in the last 18 months and everybody's locked inside, like who's really going to pivot now? Yeah. I think a lot of like the restaurant chains embraced delivery really fast right. and delivery apps, even the ones that were hesitant uh, to do so. Like I'm an, I'm an investor in Shake Shack. You saw how quickly they said, you know what, <laughs> we have this chance now to like put a huge investment into drive throughs which they don't have. And Wall Street will come along with us. Like if we commit to that and we spend that money, we're, we're not going to see a bigger stock hit than we've already seen anyway. So why not just do it? Like that's one micro example. But I do think that a lot of companies took advantage of this moment. But back to Andreessen's point, I don't I don't know that you're going to get a non-tech company with that much tech buy-in almost no matter what at the highest levels. I actually was going to go the other way. I was As you guys are talking, I was thinking that maybe this is more industry specific, that old tech can't catch up to new tech. But a company like... Uh, Macy's, The Gap, like, I don't know why I'm picking two retail companies, but they can quicker adapt to the current environment by adopting tech that wasn't in place at all. Right. So, so when you look at, um, the companies that are enabling this, like Shopify is my favorite example. Like this is a company that just come along and say, okay, now you get it. You can't do things the way you were doing them. You have to be omni-channel. You have to ship, you have to, um, enable, the kind of logistics that you're competing against to get things to people quickly, et cetera. It's the easiest sale in the world. And that's why that's the largest stock in Canada today. Like it makes perfect sense. And maybe the best investments right now are the companies supplying the tools for that. Unfortunately, it's like Amazon. Right. <laughs> you're back to Google, scrappy Amazon, startups. Microsoft. Yeah. A scrappy startup like Amazon. When you look at stocks, back to the culture thing, is that the last edge? Meaning- I don't know of any metric that can quantify corporate culture. I don't think that exists. Right. So that's not a thing that can be arbed away by renaissance. Like, is that, as, a, as somebody that's looking bottom up at companies, is that something that you can quantify ever? And if it is, is anyone trying? Is anyone doing a good job with that? 
Yeah, people are trying to quantify it in a bunch of different ways. I think employee turnover, employee turnover, a bunch of things about executive comp, average age. Yeah, average age, gender mix. A lot of ESG metrics are attempting to approximate this, but it's really messy because you know ESG, for example, has you know different incentives, and in, in some of them I think make a lot of sense in terms of kind of ultra long term. But when you're looking to invest on a three to five year basis, um, I just still think that all business is still fundamentally human, fundamentally social. And so if you can take the time to understand what, you know, forget that this, we're talking about stocks. Like look at a company and think about the company like a sports team. Like we pick any sports team you're a fan of. Like every guy at the bar has opinions about how the coaching staff interacts with the players. Right. Like I saw something about it like Kawhi Leonard or somebody being angry at like a trainer in yeah. the room and that being this whole thing, right? So people are willing and there's like an industry of – spreading that information around in sports and clearly and people are betting on that. And then you talk about that in companies and people, it's a little too abstract and people don't really care. They want to take it back to numbers. So I think that, you know, the companies, well, the employees at most corporations yeah. are not nearly as visible right. as the head coach and players on an NBA team. Like, it's not like you right. can observe this from the outside. What, what well, about something like Glassdoor? Well, glass Glassdoor is one thing that we use and other people use, and there's oh, a lot in the lead things similar to that. Yeah, you go look at it. It's not. It but, has but a big selection problem. I was say, like only angry people post. It's like you Yelp get, reviews. Yeah, it's really good or really bad. It's like Yelp. Yeah. But you know what's been huge for this actually is uh, Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces, because you have a lot of you know one if a company is allowing their engineers to go and brainstorm publicly, like that's a big indicator of company culture. What they're saying uh, is it a positive indicator? It depends on the business, you right. know. I mean, I think, like, look at Twitter. You have you you have millions of users who are like, please let me search my DMs. I just right. want to search my DMs. It right. makes and I got and people are setting up. Think about how many businesses exist around Twitter because we can't do newsletters or search DMs. So all of a sudden you've got uh, uh, Slack and you've got all these other things coming on. Um, and and until recently, recently people have been really excited about Twitter because you've had five or six employees at Twitter actually using Twitter. Well, that was the funniest part about Twitter. The whole time it's been a public company, they would add board members and you would look at that. You would look at the person that just got a board seat's Twitter and there were like two tweets. Or even worse, you'd have management teams when they would, they would clearly tweet in the way somebody does when they like really hate Twitter but have to use it, where it'd be kind of like a, a filtered <laughs> right. marketing message – it would kind of be like an 8K done over a tweet. Um, so, I mean, there's just a bunch of different things. You have to go talk to a lot of people. You have to spend a lot of time. You have to look at how consistent what people say they're going to do versus what they actually do. I mean, again, people want to jump to – people always want to jump to trading. But, you know, if you were thinking about actually starting a business with somebody or, you know, if you're obsessed with a sports team, like all these other things people do routinely, you're going to take a lot of time to really get a sense for what these people are all about. But with a company, people read a single like management slide deck and go, okay, I'm ready to punt some shares. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that, you know, people can make money that way, but that's not what we do. We're really trying to, you know, most of the stuff, we have an investment right now where we did the invest, we did the research on it in 2012. So it's just, you know, and we know everybody around the ecosystem. We know everybody's tells, we know what they like, what they don't like. We know who hates each other. And that stuff matters, especially, you know, Last time I was on here, we were talking about Wall Street gets really small, but every other industry is like that too at the top. Like people – some people really don't like each other. Some people really like each other. When we, you know? we talk when we talk to retail investors, individual investors, a lot of times we'll come across situations where they'll have a big stock holding in a local company. Right. And they almost kind of have an edge 
in those cases, because their brother-in-law works there, three people they went to high school works there, they're frequently at events with these people. And I, I don't just mean like down at the mill. I'm talking about like, like people right. in upstate New York who live in a town where there's a giant employer that's a biotech company. Right. Like, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if they have an edge like alpha, but like they, they don't need to be told when's the right time to sell because they have right. a very strong sense that things are going great. And yeah, Bob's drinking a lot recently. <laughs> yeah. So that might, maybe that's, maybe yeah. that's like a, an interesting edge that you almost only can attain by living in a community where there is at least a large presence of those people that work at that company. I think it's tremendously valuable to like, you know, go to, if you're really interested in Amazon Web Services, go to the AWS developer event and talk to people and figure out, you know, what are people who are actually in this community, what do they care about? I mean, we try to do that all the time. It's just, can we go talk to people who actually, who actually use this product, who actually work with these right. people? And what you're really looking for is, you know, if you go talk to 50 people and they're all like, this is the best thing ever. It's changing my company. Nothing can replace this product. And the company's at a semi-reasonable valuation, management's aligned, yada, yada, yada. Like there are those really simple kind of Peter Lynch investments out there. I think the trouble and what I'd kind of want to know from you guys is like I know a couple people who have that local company they're invested in and they invested in it when it was at, you know, three times sales yeah, or something. Yeah. And now it's at 40 times sales. Right. And I'm having to have this conversation like, but it's a good business. And I was like, okay, but 40 times sales is so much higher than, remember when you lost money in 2000 and you told me about that? It's so much higher than what it was there. And they're like, yeah. but it's still a good company. And I, I think, I do think, you know, you need to just have some reasonable uh, like rails on this stuff right now. What's f***ed up is that actually that hasn't hurt them. Right. <laughs> that attitude of, well, it's still a good company. I'm going to hold it. That's actually been a better strategy than many others I can think of. Um, like, like I've made money in this stock, therefore I want to keep holding it. Right. That actually has been pretty good for yeah. the, I don't, it won't forever, but for the last five years, if you've tried to apply second level thinking, you've actually cost yourself money. Oh, a lot of money. Dan, yeah. one, one of the things that I've keep coming back to, maybe I have a very small sample size, but a really good investment thesis in hindsight was, oh, any company can do that. Like if you just dismissed what Netflix was doing, like HBO's could come in, Amazon's could come in. Like there's probably more examples that I'm not thinking of where you're just not giving a company enough credit. Zoom, for example. Right. Right? Like it, it, if it sounds so easy, but it's obviously not so easy. I've well, had to work on that a lot. I think we have one of the biggest examples of that of all time, which we're going to talk about later, uh, Robinhood. Yeah. Where they came along and said, we're commission-free trading and everyone why said, can't that's Schwab, it. Why can't Schwab do that? Who, right. So, so, so what do you mean you've is, had trouble so with that? This is one of the first few things I'm going to do on my sub stack is talk about this exact topic. And what's your, so, wait, let's plug, let's plug, uh, what's your, what's your sub stack going to be called, called? It's called philosophizer. Now it's a mm. bit off of dodgeball. He's like, Oh great. He's a philosophizer. And it's cause I'm just going to do philosopher King hedge fund manager stuff that nobody wants to read. Oh, I love it. And instead of doing it on Twitter, right. You're going to do it really, really, long instead form. of a thread, right. you're going to do it long form on right. the sub stack. And I'm going to thread it too. It's just going to be obnoxious. And I, I have like a disclaimer, like I'm not verifying any of this. I'm not checking it. I don't even care if it's true. Uh, I might change my mind. I might change my mind multiple so times. So sign up for so sign up for that, guys. Uh, yeah. Dance stream of consciousness. Yeah, it's just going to be you know man with takes. Right. And um, so, do you want to give us a teaser, or you want to just save it? Yeah. No. So so the, we'll go back to what you're right. saying. So like the at competition part, competition thing. So most of my investments are based on competitive dynamics. Either I think a company's got you know expanding advantage, uh, or they're going to get beaten down. And I'm looking when – when you really boil it down, I'm looking for really, really lopsided fights. Right. Um, and 
what I realized was like because I was raised by people who – and I think everybody in kind of the 25 to 40-year-old bracket at least, probably older, everybody was raised by somebody that got stung by a past bust. And so I, I said this a few weeks ago with Howard Lindzen on his podcast where you know, the first time an elder says you need to be aware of risk, valuation, blah, 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 you're like, OK. You like check the valuation. You do the numbers. The 50th time, you're like, OK, dude, we, we did this. Like I've been doing it for five years. This is all I, I get it. And actually, I've done a lot more work on the data than you have because I know how to use a computer. Um, and I've looked at 50,000 instances of this, not the three that, you know, you got sucked. And then you actually go back and you decompose how people lost money and you see that, you know, it wasn't that they got defrauded. It was that they had a 75 percent position in the fraud, right? Yeah. And then always – there's always that little asterisk that people edit out and you actually go do forensic work on why people blew up. And then, you know, by the 500th time, you're like, this is dog coin. You buy it and it goes to the moon. Yeah, that's, you know, the, en- that's the end that's, of the, that rainbow. That's where right. you a- end up. Because and I, th- I think young people are basically at a point where they're just like really tired of hearing the moralizing from people who got punked like six times in a row with the same stuff yeah. cer- from a certain perspective. And also like my generations, we're all aware of like what happened to yields and assets. If you owned any risk asset since 85 – it was layups. Yeah. And you blew up if you overlevered or did something greedy or did something dumb. But if you just like owned 30 years and the S&P, you crushed it. So a lot of people's records are really impressive until you, you know, do any benchmarking. Um, and now we're in an era of infant information. It's much harder and we're taking a lot of flack from older investors. And we're kind of like, look, we have to play. It's like poker. Poker got a lot more complicated and after it went online. And so right. like you got to be a lot better of a poker player now than you did in, you know, 1990. Um, and so, you know, I had that bias from people I learned from to look at, I'd look at some company that was, that was special, Zoom or Robinhood or whatever. And my, you know, my knee jerk bias is it's bullshit. It's a fad. Or anybody can, or anybody can just repeat what they're doing. Right. Like I just, I, I, I have such a strong bias towards it's a fad. Right. right? And then, and, and I lost a lot of money you know, earlier in my career. Why would you, would you then try to fade that thing? Oh yeah. I'd be like, they okay. just, you know, broke the backboard on a quarter. It can't get any better than this multiple from here to here. You know, I kept trying to call the top on certain things and, you know, in aggregate it's fine. But then I realized after I saw these things continue to grow and grow and grow, and that's independent of where the stock price is today. You know, it might still be overvalued, but the business is now really, really, really real thing. If you're seeing a situation where it looks like anyone should be able to do it and it looks like it's a fad and yet it doesn't stop. The indicator is that there's something yeah. really unique happening there. Like, and again, going back to sports, like you see so many athletes that hit, I mean, Steph Curry is probably a great example. You know, there are points in his career where he was just draining threes and everybody was like, that's a cool, you know, little yeah. game you're doing there, but that won't last. And then, you know, the entire sport has shifted to a, basically a three point competition. Right. Right. And, so you have to you have to pause yourself. I, I, at least I've had to really restrain myself. And we actually like I write down when I'm first looking at something. If I you know I'll just write down I think this is bullshit, and that actually basically means I need to go actually. When you say bullshit, you mean like I think there's no edge here. I think this company has no no edge here, right? Or I'm like I think venture capitalists are playing some scheme where they're going to go acquire non-economic users, or you know there's there's some other thing happening here that's not it's not that this is actually special. Right. That's my no information bias because I'm just pessimistic. And 
then I actually, I, you know, so now we have like a rule that's up on our whiteboard that says sip the Kool-Aid, which is like go actually talk to people. Don't, don't, go, don't go crazy, but go talk to people who are actually like using it. Go talk right. to people who are using Robinhood. And like what I think people aren't aware, like for example, retail investors the last year and a half, everybody's like it's going to end poorly, it's going to end poorly. And, you know, maybe it will. Uh, it has historically, but they're up a lot. Yeah, right? by just, just doing the most obvious thing they can think of. They say, this company's growing by 50% a year. I love it. All my friends are using it. Right. I don't give a shit what you think of Square's valuation. It's right. going up. And the stock price gives them evidence that they're right, like that affirmation right. on a weekly basis. So what are you going to tell that person? And then they go promote the product. Well, that's the second The second part of this is not only is what this company is doing, doesn't matter if it's unique. I like this version of it. Right. Which – uh, you know, you could think of 500 examples off the top. Like making yoga pants is not in and of itself a difficult thing for any company to do. But enough people- Yeah, Lulu's another one. That's 100% right. right. Enough people yeah. like the Lulu version of it. Or Whether or not somebody right. has a higher quality is Peloton. not the point. Chipotle, they're making burritos. What's so, why can't, what's so special about that? They're making burritos. Yeah. So it's, it's right. It's And so when you say there's something else going on here, sometimes that is- the reason why the thing is catching fire has nothing to do with its actual service. It might be the ease of using its service. Right. The ease of recommending it to friends. Uh, think of Venmo with PayPal. Yep. Robinhood. Right. It's not the only peer-to-peer uh, payment app, but it's the one that people are most likely to pass along, almost like a virus, to other people. They love it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, if, you know, there's so many other things. I think I think in a stock market context, you know, first of all, like I can't bring myself to buy half this stuff. I just go, I have no reason to play that game because I don't get it. So I'm just not going to play that game. But step outside of the stock market, you know, if there's if there's a local barbecue spot in your hometown and everybody loves it and you're the one guy who's like, it's not that special. Everybody's yeah. like, fuck you, dude. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, you're an asshole. And no, and actually like the people- <laughs> I would, That would be – I would be the one saying, eh. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that's fun. But like (laughs) at the same time, I also think there's this huge dynamic of, you know, one of the best ways to build an audience now is to have haters. Like if you want. Yeah, you're right. But I I hate that. Right. Like I, the people that are doing that. Oh, there's people who have accounts that people just love to check. Like they don't follow, but they just hate check them. Yeah. Um, So last week we were speaking about individual investor expectations and the server was probably bunk, whatever. But um, one thing that is not bunk is that for the last several years, and I would include myself in this category, financial professionals have expected lower returns, right? I could probably, I probably wrote about expecting lower returns in 2015. Right. was when I probably first wrote about it. You sounded dumb saying I expect above average returns. So we've had 15% since I said probably prepare for five to six. Lo- love being, never been more happy to been, be wrong. Um, but you still have that, and probably even more so now. And everybody, every financial professional is probably on the same side of that boat. Now, if you stretch back to like the dot-com bubble, returns haven't been so great over like a 25-year period. But Teddy Lamotti made a good bull case, and I don't think this is really on anybody's radar. But he basically said like what happens if it's been just a decade of growth dragging value across the finish line, right? The big five, we know the names. What if – value stocks um, grab the baton and start running with it. And, and not only do their earnings start to expand, but their uh, their multiples start to expand as well. What if that's like the next phase and we're not in for low returns? Anybody give want to give the credence or just it's bullshit? 
I think you've seen like the start of that, but it almost never follows through. Like we just saw six months of that. So it's, it's, it's July 1st. We watched financials, industrials, materials, and energy stocks lead the market, go on an absolute rampage. Even with those gains, they're still pretty tiny relative to the largest growth consumer discretionary and tech names. But I guess if we continue to get double digits growth, which I don't think many people are expecting, I'm certainly not, is it going to be because Apple and Amazon are going to three trillion? We saw Facebook get to a trillion. Uh, so what's going to get us if we do get, I mean, what do we think, Dan? Uh I mean, I don't know. It depends. I mean, value is such an amorphous term, right? I guess if you look in the value stocks with low price book. Let's let's just let's banks, let's start there. Banks. We're talking about banks. Banks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't As, I, asset I don't heavy, low profit margin companies. The issue with all this, they obey the capital cycle, and so I mean, you could. I think you could have a hell of a run for a couple of years, and then they would just invest in more capex, and then they would burn themselves out as they've done for quite a while. I think the bigger issue is, you know. What are you getting in bonds right now? Yeah. Nothing. So if it becomes clear that bonds are not going to re- return anything and there's just too many assets that need to be invested, if you're going to have a stock that's going to go from, th- let's say, 3% to 1%, that's a big price move. And right. so over a, over a long period of time, your expected returns are going to be poor. But if there's nowhere to go and Google's raising money at, zero in Europe and buying back stock in the U.S. with it, why should Google trade over 1% or 2%? Right. You know what people miss? And they say there's nowhere for the money to go and um, and all these value stocks will catch a bid because they're still going to out-yield in dividends, whatever. The, they miss is all the stock issuance that cancels out that scarcity. Like you can have a situation where you get $80 billion worth of IPOs so far this year which were on pace for a massive record. Um, and all of the money that would have otherwise gone into all of these publicly traded value stocks right. finds a new place to go. So it, it has a choice. Money always has a choice. Okay, question for you guys. What if instead of having, I have this conversation with everybody. Everybody's like, you know, either we're going to go on a bull run or the reckoning is finally coming. And what if it's neither? What if you keep having these little micro bubble blow-ups or or rises and then explosions? What if you have a meme stock cycle in different pockets of the market that pretty much never stops and just gaslights everybody? And what if the the index is And the overall market stays okay. Right. What if you just have madness? We've been having that. Right. Have you looked at at an electric vehicle stock lately? It's Honestly, they look apocalyptic other than Tesla. That market cap has vanished in three months. Like that's exactly – these stocks were – the hottest stocks in the market in February and in June, they can't get arrested. That didn't wreck the overall market. Right. The money went somewhere else. Yeah, that's that I think is the really scary thing for a lot of people because it's going to kind of – like what if the market doesn't give everybody a really satisfying singular narrative? What if it just gets weird and stressful and every day there's like – because you know you can, you can see it on Twitter. Like people are mad. Mm-hmm. Like, Traders are mad. That's not new. No, but – well, no, it's not new. But they just – they're really – How frustrated really were wants, the macro guys from 2012 to 2018? Like, right. It's, it's no different. It's, I'm just asking, what if we go into a regime now where nobody gets to be right? Uh, we, um, just, we just flop around. And except we're flat. people with very concentrated yeah. portfolios that – 
play the guessing game better than anyone else. Well, and you won't, but you won't hear about the guys that blow up. But we had that from 2016 to 2018. We had like, it was like a two and a half years. Right. But we didn't have, I mean, I just think there's a potential for a lot more Januaries and Marches and the index just kind of doing not a whole lot. And, you know, I don't understand why every, everybody's kind of assuming that because we've had, uh, we had these big moves in, you know, every benchmark the last right. couple of years, everybody's assuming there has to be another one. I'm like, what if the benchmarks don't really do that much, but you just have a bunch of little things. Um, so here, here's who wins, here's who wins and loses in that scenario. The losers are uh, professionals because it's frustrating when you don't have any forward momentum anywhere or you have it and it vanishes and it moves somewhere else and it rotates and it rotates. That's a tough environment. The The boomers, I think they're probably a neutral, not a winner or a loser. In that scenario, they're drawing down these assets. They're probably net sellers from now until eternity, uh, just given their age. Anything they're not passing along to the next generation is a, is a sale for them. I think they're okay. The big winners is your generation. You have 73 million millennials. They're forced savers, which makes them forced investors. They're buying stocks. And they may not feel like winners in the short term if the market's going nowhere. But the more they add to it at this price, the better off they'll be when it finally does break out to the upside, even if that takes 10 years. And I speak from experience because my formative years in the industry, we had a lost decade. So people would say, just invest, just invest, just invest. It goes nowhere for 10 years. It's, well, it doesn't go nowhere. It's a roller coaster that leads nowhere, right. which is even worse. But I think in that scenario, your generation wins. I don't know why somebody who's 30 years old or even 35 years old is rooting for all-time highs. That makes absolutely no sense to me. They have no choice but to continue to buy. Why would they want to pay the highest prices they can? So Wellington did this piece, Why Fragility is a New Reality for the Stock Market. And Corey Hofstein and a lot of other people have written about this concept of liquidity cascading and fragility in the markets. And they have a few interesting charts that I want to talk about. Um, one is showing the index liquidity versus the volatility level. And they show two lines, one from 2010 to 2015, one from 2016 to, 20, uh, to, to present. And it's saying that for a given level of volatility – the average level of futures liquidity was significantly lower. And they're saying that CTAs have a huge, have an, an enormous impact. I think they sold $500 billion worth of S&P futures during the height of COVID. So what, wait, can we define liquidity? The, the paper is calling it a function of the bid ask spread, like how much money there is waiting to buy and how much money there is to sell. Like, is that how they're defining liquidity? Yes. Well, so it says- What is it, a limit it, book or is it how much trading volume? So you're, you're going over my head, but here we go. This is what they said. The supply of liquidity in the equity market as measured by the average size of the best bid and offer in the market has declined precipitously. In the case of single stocks, liquidity has been declining pretty steadily for the past 10 plus years. So this is something that might have a fairly large impact on the market that most people, meaning people that aren't real professionals- uh, should probably not pay much attention we, to. We know it does. It's faster faster crashes, faster ra- rebounds, because the liquidity dries up when volatility spikes, exactly when you don't want it to, and then vice versa. When volatility starts subsiding, the liquidity ramps up right back up. So this Do is I have dumb, that right? This is dumb, yeah, so this is a dumb question, but who is this really impacting? I know it's impacting all of us because we're all market participants, 
But when they say liquidity, like Dan, are you having trouble putting trades on? Is that what they're talking about? Or are they just saying liquidity in the futures market dries up and markets move faster? What are we talking about here? I mean, what they're talking about is a little bit different. And I don't know that the framing is 100% correct. But I mean, you you are overall having more price impact if you're moving your money in and out of the market. If you're average Joe, or even if you've got a pretty large personal account, you know, unless you're trying to buy a stock right this absolute second, I think you're fine as long as it's not, you know, really tiny thing. If you're trading SPY or something, you know, this is not an issue for most people. Um, in small and mid caps, which is most of what I invest in, you know, you have to just kind of take your time moving in and out of things because, you know, there aren't as many kind of massive prop shops or bank prop desks. There's not people just sitting there waiting with shares to sell them to you. If well, I banks wanna, have been pushed out of the Pushed out of this activity by regulation. Right. Like they don't I, want them having this risk on their books. Right. So if I go and I want to, if I want to buy ten million dollars of a, you know, five hundred million dollar company, you know, there's not a machine that's holding that much stock waiting to sell for, sell to me. So, you know, you have to be a little more creative. You have to be a little slower. Um, you know, and and the other thing is everybody's seen that. So the other factor here is most people are trading with things like a VWAP algorithm where you're just saying, you know, buy me a little bit throughout the day or over the next few days, something like that. And so if, you know, think about how that affects it. If everybody's just sort of nibbling all the time, then the dealers, why are they going to take all this inventory risk if they know most of their customers are now nibbling instead of taking huge chomps? There are people that are doing like big block trades and stuff like that. If you're a big boy and you want to go buy, you know, $400 million of Facebook at a given price at a given time, like that is a business, but that's, you know, how many people are doing that? That's yeah. you know, 200 investors globally that really do that. Um, so, so this I, this is just not relevant, I think, to most people. And, I think where it's relevant, know. though, this example. So they're talking about the market making activity has basically been handed over to let's we'll call them hedge funds. I know some of them are pro- proprietary trading shops, yeah, yeah, whatever. whatever. Let's just say hedge funds. And so Citadel is a good example of that. So basically, this is where the liquidity is now. But the problem is that liquidity is not the same as liquidity used to be where it's just always there. These algorithms are written to literally turn the machines off right when they're needed the most. So there's less profitability. There's less expected return on a trade when volatility spikes. So they literally stop trading and that's the prop. That's how it, and the example they give, um, they think that these strategies um, sold Five hundred billion dollars worth of stock during the height of the COVID-driven volatility in March of 2020, like net sellers of half a trillion dollars worth of stock. Um, that's where it affects the average person because think about how fast that happened. Yeah, and when you're sitting there watching that, and you grew up, you're not even a boomer. You're 50 years old, and you grew up in a market that used to be human, and is now acting like this, instantaneously adjusting. $500 billion worth of stock, that's a, that's a shock. Like, yeah, you know, to, to most investors, uh, what's the second chart? Well, I think, I think just on that, you know, what we've done is we basically assume the way we've worded internally, we assume there are going to be more accidents in the market Okay, because the mar- there, there's not, you know, there's not a guy down at a physical floor who can take $500 billion of, of inventory off your hands. Yeah. So I think you got to assume, and you've seen it the last few years, right? We've had, since 2018, we've had, what, three, four, five months where we've had these massive 20 plus percent swings both ways that recover almost immediately. That's not accidental. That's structural in the market. 
And so, you know, you know, I, then this is not advice for anybody else, but we, we've been keeping a little more cash, having a little less exposure because one to four times a year, there's a big accident and I like to have some walking around money to go pick things up that I think are, you know, being forced is sold it, for whatever it, reason. Isn't that in line with history though? Not one like, to four times a year have a, a – Yeah, but they're, but they're, they're, they're so much quicker. And they do seem to be happening quick, more – They're quicker. But, but uh, when you say uh, – yeah. uh, what, what did you call that? Accidents. Uh, Accidents are going to happen in the market. Oopsies, I think. Is it, yeah, it, a it, little oopsie-daisy. Institutional made, oopsie-daisy. That just made me think of – was this SNL, Oops, I Crap My Pants? That's pretty much it, Yeah. What Josh, is, you know what I'm talking about here? I do. <laughs> what what's this what's this chart? Yeah. This is this is what's the the blue line is estimated equity exposure, and they're showing it drops when realized volatility goes up. So it's like the opposite of what you want if you're building if we were building this structure from scratch, we would build it the opposite of the way it's actually operating. Yeah, le- last point I want uh actually I don't have this chart with me. All right, whatever. We don't need to spend too much time here, but Dan, I just wanted to get your take on Wait, I have a last point on this. Go ahead. I want to say who the f*** is buying the $500 billion worth of securities that these strategies are dumping right at the absolute height of the panic. And I think it's pretty obvious it's the dumbest money. And by dumb, I don't mean stupid. I mean the least feeling, thinking, worrying money. Vanguard. It's, it's, I think it's 401k. Me. It's Michael, it's you, and me, and then it's – so. I actually think it's the guys who run zero hedge so they can frame the Fed for buying the but stocks. This, look at this. Though. This is this is rolling 24-month volatility of one-month realized S&P 500 volatility. And it is going steadily increasing since the whenever this chart starts in the early 90s. So, so this is what I think the money shot is. This is from the, this is from the Wellington piece. We think this is a result of the growing role of systematically oriented trading firms in the market-making ecosystem. Just say Citadel, we all know. Uh, by some estimates, as much as 80% of equity market making is now algorithmically driven. There's no guy with white gloves. It's a software program. Um, these firms recognize risk-adjusted returns return to being providers of liquidity uh, fall when volatility rises, leading them to rapidly withdraw their capital. Uh, so my take is the other side of that is mom and pop allocating to 401k. They, they pay no attention whatsoever to the VIX. It's just, it's on autopilot, and that is the counterbalancing force. I jotted this down. Um, every two weeks, this money comes into the market. 401k is $6.9 trillion as of Q1 this year. 401k balances are up from $3 trillion 10 years ago. It's 600,000 separate plans, 60 million participants. Over 70% of that money goes directly into stock funds. So retirement plan money is a fifth of the market. So if you say like, all right, we have this thing where systematic strategies are yanking liquidity out, well, this is who's bringing it back in. And I actually think they're benefiting as a result of not trying to time any of this stuff. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I don't think that's controversial. Are they, are they benefiting or are they making their own outcome? Um, not on purpose. Well, I mean, they I don't, don't know I don't what think, they're doing. I don't think there's any thinking. It's just like. That's right. They know, don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, 3.7% of 401k account holders stopped contributing during 2008, which is the most volatile market of our lifetime. So less than 4% of 401k allocators looked at the volatility and said, stop, which means 96% of people didn't give a shit. And so I think that's how you balance out that lack of liquidity in the market. Just that money coming in every two weeks, regardless of what's going on. It's hard to picture a scenario where people stop doing that. Yeah. They haven't yet. So 
So Dan, I know you don't like to bucket value growth, but let's just let's just uh, call value oh statistically cheap companies. We don't need to get into too much here, but value and interest rates and inflation. The story goes that higher interest rates are good for cash flow today, right? We're getting the cash flow today. Lower interest rates make the value of cash ten years uh, higher. So it's a very clean story that we're telling ourselves in Acadian Asset Management has this new piece where the TLDR is previously narratives that imply a straightforward causal relationship between interest rates and the performance of equity value strategies are oversimplified. I've always thought this, that it, it can't just be that easy. I mean, if it was, we would all know what to do uh, all the time. What, what do you think about the relationship between interest rates, inflation, and stocks? I, I think it's kind of ridiculous when you look at where the world is right now, you know, any data we have that's relevant is what, pre-1985 to what we're actually talking about here. And, and we're not talking about 50 basis points to 150 basis points or 100 basis points or 200 basis points. We're talking about like sustained 500, 600, 700 basis point yield. And I think everybody likes to flex their macro one-on-one <laughs> stuff, but the world looks so incredibly different. Um, all of this stuff that we've been hedonically adjusting out of CPI, like we have no idea how that stuff behaves if you actually get to like those high nominal growth rates. Everybody like kind of has to have an opinion about it, but I don't think we have any data. It's like right now everybody's worried yeah, about inflation. time is different. No, I'm just saying we have no way of knowing. Huge red flag, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the, what I'm saying is, yeah. Um, <laughs> you but, know those are the most dangerous four words in the world? Oh, yeah. Have you heard this before? Dude, that's genius. You, you should, heard that? You did, should, you should, did you make that should up? Should I tweet that the next time yeah. the market hits an all-time high? Wow. Profound. <laughs> um, but I guess, I guess, listen, it are, would higher interest rates impact Shopify's business? No, of course not. But would higher interest rates potentially impact what a, uh, an investor would pay for that future stream of earnings. It's not an unreasonable conclusion to draw, but I think that like to be so. Uh, okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Go make a point about Shopify. The issue is, let's say all of a sudden you're, you know, a random business, and uh, your cost of capital goes from six percent to fifteen or sixteen if you're a small business, something right, like that. Right. Right. Um, there's this argument about like what's going to happen to certain businesses, but then there's just a, an issue of relative competitive positioning. I think the issue is the big tech companies, stuff like that. If you went to a five or six or seven percent world, they're going to be able to take a bigger in the, in the scenario where it's because business is doing well, they're going to be able to take a bigger and bigger cut, and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Ah. And also, if it's a scenario where we've lost control of interest rates in some kind of um, Austrian economics uh, wet dream situation. Uh, it's bad for everything, right? And so there's like this really weird small Venn diagram where I think practically that relationship is going to matter. And I don't think we know because you need to know like six other things to know whether well, – That was the finding right. in, in Acadian's piece is that there are too many other co-variables that you can't point to this one thing. No. Low rates mean great for growth stocks. High rates mean great for value because there's so much else going on. But I actually do think that there is a story, and so far it feels like it's true. I'd love to I'd love to hear what you think. That actually what lower interest rates do is they they lead to a spur in just more bountiful capital for venture companies. And it's, I don't think it's coincidence, for example, that we have low interest rates for 10 years, zero interest rates for seven years. And you have the onset of the unicorn era and you have all these pre-market startups worth billions of dollars. 
To me, that can't be something that's just happening on a parallel track. It has to be related. There's a lot of money out there. And what that does to value stocks is it gives their disruptors more firepower to come at them. And that's why value stocks get a lower multiple in low rates. Because think about all the companies coming to kill them, having absolutely no problem accessing capital. The only advantage incumbents have over startups is they have cash flow coming in. So they can they can fend off competition or they could charge lesser dollars than a startup can. When you neutralize that advantage and you make it so anything Mark Andreessen backs can automatically be a $5 billion valuation and can raise money like that, that's why value stocks are depressed. I mean, that's my st- that's my story at least. I think that's a really good story. And it, it told us how we got to how we got to now. But it doesn't tell us what happens on the other side. Did these growth, did these Shopify and the squares of the world and whoever else, did they grow, did they uh, uh, build such an advantage that they can now withstand higher rates if they ever come anyway? But when, Which rates, I don't think but that, when rates went nuts this spring, they did beat up a lot of the recently funded venture backed stocks on Wall Street. Like, yeah, but the initial, con- the, the issue with all these comparisons is, you know, we're coming off of a place where things are sp- backing out at 50 times sales and stuff, right? So like, where are we, where are we measuring that? Right. Where are we, and also values just been a nightmare for a long time. And also a lot of people believe that there's that relationship there. And so a lot of people are making that trade on that relationship and making it happen. And that's, that's such that's, a great point. It doesn't matter if it's true. Yeah, it it matters if other people think it's true. Right. right. But right. I, I think the thing on interest rates is forgetting macroeconomics, look at it from um, like a, not a, just a personal level. A lot of this is really about trust and and almost collusion because a lot of these startups, what you know, what they the pitch they really needed, like if you went to somebody in 1970, unless you were the son of some oil baron or something, and you were like, "Hey, if you give me 300 million dollars, I can run all of my competitors out of business, and I can have a permanent moat in this really valuable vertical, and then from there, I'll launch six other business lines." And I'll dominate, you know, I'll yeah. be a I'll be a trillion dollar company. And they'll be like, that's really nice. Get out of my office, put down the reefer. Right. Um, it's ridiculous. It would be insane. Um, but now, you know, there's all these different relationships. So one is, yeah, interest rates are are low, but there's also precedent that, that that's actually possible. Yeah. People that there's now there's proof of concept. Right. And so people are willing to trust and in a sense collude and and build these long-term capital commitments. Um, and it's becoming self- fulfilling. On the flip side, if, you know, if we're in, the question is why are interest rates up in a given world? If we're, if interest rates are up because people are fearful that the value of the dollar is falling or something else is falling, it's because there's a real lack of trust. And the reason some businesses do well in that environment, you know, particularly banks. So I don't think you're saying trust. I think you're saying belief. There's a, there's a, there's a bull market. There's a bull market. I called it credulousness. There's a bull market in belief that some kid with an idea is worth giving millions of dollars to. And like, to your point, that's now happening on an industrial scale right. that we've never seen before. But I just can't divorce that being the case right now with how cheap it is and how much money there is well, available. Yeah, look, if, you can, if you can trust an 18-year-old with a ton of money or you can just get 16%, it's a different question if you can trust, you know, 18-year-old or 1%. The other thing is there's all these other benefits. You know, you invest in a startup and then people put it – you know, people put it on their LinkedIn, investor and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They put it on their Twitter. They're constantly pumping the product. 
then they get access to other deals. They get invited. They get jobs. I mean, you have people who stop making fun of Packy. You know, <laughs> uh, we've got no like, a lot of people, and, and it's, it's like it's a viable path, dude. You're going. You're you're a Substack guy now. You're gonna have in your in your bio. You're gonna have three startups that you've Sip invested in, like overnight. That's like part. Of, that's part of what you get walking in the door at Substack. Right. So I mean, just get excited. Yeah, they're gonna give me one share in like you good know, enough. Put it in the bio. Yeah, I got one OnlyFans share. You know, something like that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it's just a different, I, I really don't think, I do not think this time is different in the sense that like prices, prices are still going to do what prices are going to do. And you're probably going to take a beating if you're just long some crazy stuff and I can't get myself to buy it. So I'm going to say that to protect my own ego. But, um, I do, I don't think any of this data in the past is remotely comparable. And the biggest reason is the internet. Go back to like 1950 or before we got like you know, a handful of telegraph lines and phone lines people are using to communicate. Everybody's worried about supply chains right now. When we got a bazillion undersea cables, everybody's, you know, when CNN is globally broadcasting the concern about supply chains, people know there's a problem with the supply chain. Everybody globally yeah, is that, worried that about would, supply chains. That would have been an edge 15 years ago right. for somebody. Well, I mean, you, you can read about like Soros and Robinson, some of these guys, like one of their edges was, you know, they had a faster phone. Right. Right, that was a legitimate. Dude, thing. There, w- there will be blood. Remember, remember the montage where he's running around Texas, meet I guess Texas meeting investor groups. He's like, My right. name is Daniel Plainview. I've traveled across the yeah. state to be with you tonight. Uh, just imagine that guy. Right but now it's on a tweet. Twitter. Now it's Wait, a tweet. What's- now it's a tweet to an to an S one. Right. We're coming public in two weeks. I'm not allowed to talk about it. Right. But like that guy has spent six months building a persona on a social media app and now he's coming public. That's that's a huge difference right. from so, any other time period. Yeah, yeah. So for and so forget like this is my issue is let's say let's say uh the value interest rate thing turns out to be true and interest rates go up because growth is up and value companies start doing well. What's gonna happen is certain people are gonna realize, wait a minute. Let's just take over one of these value companies and start doing that stuff yeah. with the with the value company. Yeah. And it's just going to be the same thing. And so it's, you know, it's going to be a trade, but I just don't see like I just don't see this glorious 2000 to 2003 trade happening. I that, then again, I don't really trade commodities in any way, so I don't have a view there at all. Um I'm glad you but, said that though. I actually think it's not even about value, it's industry. Right. So rising rates, there is a direct correlation between the profits at financial companies that are That makes a lot of sense. That are yeah. bar- borrowing and lending and and the steeper rates get, the more money they make. That's like a that's like not a story. That's actually the truth and it would make sense that multiples would go up for that group because investors like when profits are rising. So it's not really value versus growth. It's like what segments of the economy. And I think if you throughout that whole value versus growth debate and just said, is it more favorable to be a consumer luxury brand right now or to be a company bending metal into soup cans? Like it, it's a, it's a more reasonable debate. Yeah. And the, I mean, yeah. And the, and the prices we're starting from that's, and the start and the starting price, which ultimately should have some impact on the ending valuation that right. you, or, or just, the ending profit. I think, I think doing industry level analysis on this stuff makes way more sense to me than yeah uh, like a mul- like a what the multiple screen says thing and and I I really don't know 
what to make of that heads or tails on like a just like let's say value. Let's say and you know you know that's true because of the way international markets had been correlated with value. Uh, what's his name? Uh, there's there's a guy on Twitter who always has like great work on how like the different country valuations are entirely explained by sectors. Yeah. Um, who does that? Uh, Lawrence Hamtel does. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. yeah. Lawrence so, does great stuff. That's and, and that's deadlifts. so that's so intuitive. Like just start just start there. Like instead of trying to worry about like why is uh, for example why is England under or out? What is in the English stock market? Like it's so it's such a better approach. And I think the same thing with growth and value. When you see value outperform growth for six months and you see a huge rally in German and French stocks relative to U.S. stocks, it's an industry story. Right. It's not because there's some weird correlation. It's a perfectly logical correlation. Or, or, it's, a, or it's a currency thing or something. It's just these things are really, really complicated. And so anytime you know, somebody wants to take it to value versus growth – you know, the answer is it depends. It's complicated. It's situational. <laughs> yeah. Price, da, 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 you know. So, Dan, you uh, worshipped at the altar of Buffett and Munger, and I know that Seize Candy is your favorite example yes. of all time. Um, did you did you watch last night, or was it this morning? When was it? I got to be honest. I didn't even know whatever that was was happening. People just started sending me Buffett stuff all at the same time, and I was like, why are people texting let's set, me? Let's set this up for people. Tuesday night, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger – who are um, 112 and 117, uh, respectively, sat down with Becky Quick and did an hour special. I don't know, like a, like a, I mean, Becky's great. And, you know, she always has great discussions with them. The two sound bites that came out was that Charlie Munger is kind of cool with communist China. And he likes that they squashed Jack Ma and made him disappear. And what was the other thing that he said? I didn't, I don't know. You didn't even watch it. No, that's amazing that you didn't even watch it. That's how far you've. That's how far away you've come from. And you didn't see. You saw clips of it. I was at a dinner and my phone started exploding. And I had. I first one I saw was Charlie is a communist, and the second text was <laughs> Charlie really understands China. And I was like, <laughs> huh. what? And I was like, I'm I'm gonna opt out of this. He was calling. He was calling people swingers, Charlie. I don't know what that. I don't know what he's referring all right, to. All right, all right. It, it so, went on for a long so time. So the, the question is like, what could, what do they have to teach us at this point? We've we you know we've read and maybe squeezed all the juice that we can, but there are still timeless investing lessons, even if they're not directly applicable to today's market. And there they will still say some stuff that even if you're just relearning what you already know, like I think that can be valuable. So for example, John hit this clip. I thought. I thought I saw somebody tweet this. I thought this was a good one. All the early businesses that we owned together have disappeared. They didn't disappear. They failed. They failed. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> but but we took so much out of them before they failed that we it still worked out fine for us. So 10K Diver tweeted. He said, "A wonderful nugget of investing wisdom. All businesses eventually die. The essence of investing is to buy businesses that give us back so much in dividends before they die that we get our purchase price back plus a decent return." So you, so you're saying that there is still the the question was not is there anything we can learn from Buffett and Munger anything new, is there anything more? Right, those are different questions. Well, I don't, but I don't. That's th- that's I, what I'm. No, that's I get what it. I'm, I get. I'm, listen, I'm eventually, I don't think I think it's really healthy to graduate from your mentors, right? Like to say like, holy shit, I've learned so much from this person, and I've spent so much time dissecting their brain that there's nothing more I can learn. But if this were 2016, you you would not have missed that, and you would have watched it live, 
And you would have tweeted on it. Yeah. It's 2021. So you have graduated the school of Buffett and Munger. But so I, you're but, answering my question, basically. Yeah, like, but I'm not, that's not a bad thing. There's no knock on them. What I don't think la- it's what, a bad thing either. What are you laughing at? They've given more to the world in terms of like investing knowledge than any two people, any other two people alive other than maybe Bogle. What do you think, Dan? So I, but the question is like from this point forward, is there anything new? Well, because they're repeating themselves. They're, they're not going to say anything that you're like, holy shit, that is enlightening. I mean, I think you need to publicly challenge them for oh, yeah, the throne. <laughs> like that's, I, this is like a uh, Clubber Lang situation. You need to go get up in their face at a- Michael has graduated yeah. from Charlie Munger to uh, Pomp. Stop. Right. So he's, right. got, he's got new mentors now. I mean, I don't know how you how you say anything negative against their their are they both in their nineties now? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. No, you're an if you if you they're trash the go- they're if the you, goats. If you trash they're them, the goats. Right. I mean they 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 are so past Hall of Fame yeah. that they could they could right now start actively attempting to destroy their reputation and track record and it would still be the number one ever. Right. So it would still not work. They could start buying AMC tomorrow right. and the hagiography would not be any different. Right. I mean, it'd be really, really hard for them to to botch it at this point. Actually, that that would be their, like, greatest achievement. If, if they could manage to ruin Berkshire from now. <laughs> in, like, two, in, like, in a two-year time In, like, frame. the next – yeah, the next two years, I mean, that would be their greatest achievement. It, it would almost be like – have you ever seen those uh, – the Buddhist guys that do, like, the sand sculptures and then they sweep it away at the end, like, just to do that with Berkshire? That would be the greatest <laughs> artistic achievement in financial history. Well, there are people that think the bull case in Berkshire – is that when one or both of them go, uh, and knock on wood, let's let's hope that doesn't happen anytime soon. Um, but when one or both of them go, then all of a sudden it becomes a sum of the parts story, and the co- the conglomerate starts to literally sweep itself away in the form of spinoffs uh, or any other divestitures that they've really just not been willing to do for a long well, time. How's that going to happen? An activist, an activist comes in. No, maybe that's in the in the last will and testament for the company. No way. You don't. You don't think there's instructions if you if you are going to dismantle this company uh, to return more cash to shareholders. This I just is how they, they, they wrote it. a they wrote a smart contract. That's not going to happen. It's, it's, on, it's an EC twenty. Yeah. This is on. This is on the chain. I just hope it's like a Thor's hammer situation where like only the worthy one can wield it. All right. If you ask a hundred, if you ask a hundred people, professionals or civilians, I don't care, what happens to Berkshire stock the day. One of them retired. Let's just say, let's say it retires. retires. Okay. What happens to the stock? Do you think a hundred people would say it goes down? Yeah. But I think no change. Um, what if it goes up? Yeah. I, I, yeah. That's what I was thinking. I'm not saying it will, but wouldn't that, I'm a shareholder, Berkshire shareholder, uh, like every other basic. Uh, <laughs> I just, I think, I, here's what I'll say. I think that whenever that happens, you're going to see some stuff that is so shameless it makes crypto look – What do you mean? The, the takes? No. Well, yeah, the takes are going to be – I might have to turn off my, my I'm computer. I'm not going to use the internet for like a week. My take uh, my take is going to be some like gross like I love you. you I mean <laughs> yeah. I mean like what else can <laughs> you, you already, say? You already know. But you know there's going to be somebody who's going to wait. You know, it's like in – again, in Tropic Thunder, it's like when they're like, we're going we're to wait an appropriate amount of time, preferably before the end of the fiscal year. Did you watch Tropic Thunder last night or I this didn't, morning? I just have like an encyclopedic comedy movie script. It's, one of, my, my it's one of my favorites. So, I mean, you're going to see people, they're going to wait like, you know, two weeks <laughs> and then they're going to buy a massive position, try to go activist, try to break it, like break it up. Oh, and you I never, think you, you never do that. 
you're, you could name you. There are like five guys who I think nobody would be shocked if they tried to forcibly take the reins of Berkshire via some public a- campaign. Ackman's going to raise uh, a seven hundred billion dollars spec to to buy Berkshire. <laughs> I th- At least fifty percent odds. I th- I think I'm all right. I'm pretty certain that we'll see a couple of people. Uh, I'll actually be disappointed if Bill doesn't take a shot at it. Take a shot at what though? Like put uh, me on the board? Something I, like that. I understand the, the if Berkshire he approach involved, better than anyone. Right, if he does not become involved in Berkshire, I will be legitimately. Don't you think that shot. he's already got the letter ready to go? He already wrote it. He probably wrote it five years ago. He's probably already sent it. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. What about what's his name? The guy that's teaching hedge fund courses now. Wasn't he like? The self-proclaimed oh. biggest Berkshire acolyte. Whitney Tilson. Whitney t- Does Whitney Tilson throw his hat in the ring? He's making like a lot of money. With I'm that sure he's doing fine. Newsletter. Yeah. I, I don't – I think he might make less money running Berkshire <laughs> from what I hear. I think he's killing it. Um, were you surprised that they did this this one-hour interview out of the middle of nowhere for seemingly no reason and not have a bombshell to drop? Because I thought that the I reason think- they were doing this was to announce one of them was going to – like step down, step down from whatever they're doing. I I I really have never known them to do anything without a reason. Usually, you got to wait a minute and then you see why they did what they did. So I hope that you know they're both in good health. Or you know, two but. things happened in the last month that make me feel that maybe they just wanted some positive press on their own terms. Okay. The first is the leak of all the billionaires' tax records and the reopening of that societal wound, and the second is. Uh, whatever the hell, and I don't even really understand it, is going on with Bill Gates, who is synonymous with Warren Buffett in the public eye. Is it a coincidence that they just randomly did a TV special? I think addressing, uh, I you know, I think he didn't address you, either. By the well, way, you're right, but I think when you have an issue like that, you just want to disappear. And I don't know that many people tied Buffett to that. He has nothing to do with it in real uh, life, but it's his know, best friend. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why they did it. Maybe they just said, "Hey, I want to." Say some stuff. Actually, the, you said, can we learn anything from them? Um, Charlie tweeted that uh, he loves Zoom. Or right. he didn't tweet. I'm sorry. He didn't tweet it. He didn't tweet it. He said that he loves Zoom. My, my brain almost just broke. I mean, I think, no, but I, I, I mean, I did see that part. But I, I mean, honestly, Charlie might have said. He loves Zoom's valuation or he loves the technology? Technology. Okay. Here it goes. I have, here's a quote. I have fallen in love with Zoom. I think Zoom is here to stay. It just adds so much convenience. Yes. So. He's bullish on the I mean, hot take, Charlie. He might have woken up and said, wouldn't it be hilarious if I went on TV and said I love Zoom? And then, hey, Warren, come do this with me. I mean, I could see him doing that. Uh, all right. Let's let's move on. Uh, we wish uh, we wish nothing but the best for Buffett and Munger. We love these guys. Um, I want to talk about weddings. The wedding boom is on. Let me pull like one. Let me pull one quote from this. I'm the least I'm the least surprised at this one. Uh, I want to get your take. Weddings are making a huge comeback and couples are panic booking. That sounds like something that that would happen in my house. Um, basically what they're saying is my business from last June was a lot of silence. Now we're right back into it. They go to all these brides, all of these wedding planners, all of these venues, and people are jumping over each other to make sure they get their date on the calendar. Are you surprised by this? The speed of it, how quickly it, it the switch flipped, or not really? Who's, who's surprised by who? Who is surprised by this? Uh, I don't know. I is think there are people that said small weddings are the new normal, and we may never see a four hundred person wedding ever again, et cetera. That flies until you know your significant other's best friend has a big wedding, and then 
you need to have a big wedding, and then all of their other friends need a big wedding. Yeah, we'll be, be right back into the swing of things. Duncan's and, getting married. I mean, it's a pecking order thing. Duncan, you're getting you're. Are you having a massive wedding? No, no, it's it's not massive. Where I, is where is your wedding taking place? I heard it's far away from here. It's Wilmington, North Carolina. Okay, uh, when is it? It's uh, October tenth. Is it at a bigger? Is it at a smaller venue than it otherwise would have been pre-COVID, or not necessarily? Uh, no, no. We basically the moving target has been how many people we can have there. But yeah, we, it it didn't uh, factor into where we were going to have it. We didn't know if we were actually going to be able to have it for a while. Um, we thought we might end up canceling. But yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to practice your vows with us now, or no thanks? So I'm throwing a bar mitzvah in, in February, and we almost canceled it two months ago. Because we were hearing like venues would make kids wear masks and et cetera. Right. And now it seems like there's no more restrictions and we're just going to like, we're just going to do it. And you guys are going to come and uh, no, but it's going to be the same amount of people. We started playing in 2017. Same place. Same place, same amount of people. Literally nothing's changed. And we literally were on the verge of canceling it like a couple of months ago. So I was a little surprised at my own willingness to be like, Let's do this. And now people are like, well, what if this winter is really bad? Oh, come on. All right. So I'll lose the deposit. I mean, I'll lose the deposit. What am I going to? What if? I'm right. going to have doctors on on site. What do you want me to say to that? What are you going to do about the zombies? What are you going to do? Right. What right. are you going to do mean, about the zombies? Look, everybody's just hammered right now. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have tried to get any actual work done in the last like three weeks, but since – beginning of June, it kind of stopped off, and then now it's getting ridiculous. Dude, I'm, where, drunk, I'm drunk right now. Right. Nobody is doing anything. Like, everybody got their shots. There was, like, a two-week, like, okay, this is cool. I think that depends now, on who you're dealing with. I mean, <laughs> I'm, you know, some CEOs of companies who are, who are like, we're supposed to have a meeting. Hey, can we do it at the bar? I'm like, really? Yeah. Um, I mean – I'll Last call you for my I'd, boat right. I got from somebody. I've, I've, you know, I have a, I had a barbecue last weekend and normally, you know, I go, Hey, I'm going to grill some stuff. Maybe 25, 50% of the people I'm texting can, can come. Everyone came. We had like 50 people on this roof that I was not supposed to have 50 people on. <laughs> and, you know, just anybody wants to go out and do anything right now. I think they're like a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. I don't yeah. care. Chuck E. Cheese. Let's go. They have a bar. Like people just want to get out, get out there. I mean, I was talking to some people who work at some of the uh, online dating companies and they were just laughing. They were like, dude, you have never seen the data we ha we're seeing right now. People are so aggressive. Yeah. I mean, and, and they said, we, we even have data where women are being the net aggressors in certain circumstances. What does that mean? They're messaging more people than the average male on the platform is? They're like the rate at which they're swiping yes is way <laughs> up. And then they're initiating conversations. They're like, women don't initiate conversations. It never happens. And now women are initiating conversations. And also they look at like relative response time and things like that on different sites. And so some of them are saying the women are now responding within like 30 seconds of receiving a message. And normally their like response time last year was like four hours. You know, it's funny. I bet the best, the best like a uh, metric, or if you had to just capture one visual to see like what was the pandemic outside of like foot traffic, subway, air travel, it would be right. probably dating sites. Right. Like if you just saw, if you were an alien, you just saw the data, you'd be like, what the hell happened right. on planet earth? So are I, you, so are you just f***ing killing it right now? Like, is this the, is this the, actually, not, sadly, is this the sadly, summer of Dan? Well, you know, not sadly, but I, I, I started dating somebody right before COVID and we were, we were, you know, 
You got luck, I, then you she, got lucky. Yeah, she and I were getting to know each other. It was going really well. And then the world ended and we had to make the call of, so are we basically going to move in together or is this right. going to end? And we decided to basically move in together. I'd never moved in with a woman before. And, I, you know, I went from- This dude's crazy. He started the sentence with sadly. We could yeah, add, we could I edit was this. Like, yeah, please cut that out because I, I do not want to be able to Duncan, sleep. Duncan, do, do not edit. Do not edit. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I went from like living with multiple guys- to and like frat house situations to briefly living on my own to now living with a woman. So there's like plants in my apartment now. There's like yeah. a kombucha jar and there's Multiple like this toothbrushes. living. It smells good. There's like this living thing that's producing kombucha and I, I think it's vile. And then, yeah, there's multiple toothbrushes. The towels are clean. Have, Probably not after this podcast. Have you seen but, Pr- no. Prometheus? That started with kombucha. That's, yeah, no, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. Is I'm like, this thing is going to get out of here. Yeah. It's, it's going to wrap around us. your neck. Chris, right. uh, Chris drinks Grant, that shit wherever. Grab he, your face out. It's gross. Everywhere, yeah. everywhere we go with our partner, Chris, like every city. Duncan, you drink kombucha. You, yeah. I'm not, I, 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 mean, I could have yeah. guessed that. I've, I've had it. He's dabbled. Uh, everywhere we go with Chris, if he sees it somewhere, like at a WeWork. Right. Like a random we work in Austin, we're throwing a meeting there. Yeah. If there's kombucha, you, you can't oh, find it for 20 minutes. All right, we, we're, we're going long. Let's just go quick on, on Robinhood because their S1 dropped. And right. to me, the craziest thing, and there's so much in here, was their revenue in 2019 was $270 million. In 2019, in 2020, it was 960. That's sick. What is, what I is- mean- this is their average users, total revenue. I mean, when we were talking about Robinhood, I remember a time saying, what are they, $10 billion in assets? They're like, eight, so what are they, 80? It's, it's, it's 80. Okay. So they just settled a $70 million fine, the, the largest ever penalty um, exacted by FINRA, which is the broker-dealer uh, regulatory authority. And uh, how much was it? $70 million. Their, which their, their Q1 payment for order flow was, a lot. Th- was $330 million. Yeah, they net come out ahead, I guess. Ahead. Um, really, maybe five hours worth of negative headlines. And now they've cleared the decks. The S1 comes out the day after yeah. they pay this fine, Man. the settlement, th- th- whatever it is. Th- this, this was a good one from the FINRA uh, press release. The firm relied on algorithms known at Robinhood as option account approval bots to approve customers for options trading with only limited oversight by firm principals. Those bots often approved customers to trade options based on inconsistent or illogical information. True. All true. They did that. They didn't well, give, well, a, they they, didn't they, give they, a shit. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't confirm or deny. They just paid the fine. Okay. Because they did that. We know that. Of course they did. Anecdotally, right. we know most of the people talking about trading options are like 13 years old. And I, I don't do, know. I do love the, the like 12-year-old TikTokers who are – like wrongly explaining. Oh, it's amazing. Con- I mean, Some I, of the best content of the pandemic. I had to delete TikTok. I downloaded it to try it. And I was like, I'm going to watch five minutes. And then two hours went by and I was like, nope, this stuff is crack. Cannot have it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, that was some of the most entertaining content to come out during the pandemic was people who placed their first trades, walking you through them, placing their second trade. Right. Like, ex- like a wise expert. As an, as an expert. Um, this changes nothing. The fine Everybody's aware that Robinhood basically was a break everything, move fast, break things company. Nobody seems to really care. I think probably doesn't change the valuation it'll get when it goes public. No way. This also blew my face off. Um, in the For the quarter ending in March, 17% of their revenue was from crypto. At quarter ending December, it was only 4%. Wow. It went from 4% of revenue in December 
quarter in December to 17%. And they literally, this was a real risk disclosure in their 3 million pages. Quote, if demand for transactions in Dogecoin declines and is not replaced by new demand for cryptocurrencies available for trading on our platform, our business, financial condition, and result of operations could be adversely affected. How oh much are they God. scalping I'm, on a Dogecoin if it's I'm, 29 cents? All of it. Well, <laughs> the whole 29 cents. <laughs> I'm going to read the whole last one. This, this is just really good. I might need a scotch beforehand. It's long, but, but uh, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's gold in there. Actually, there were so many people – downloading it that the so most of the images weren't even loading for me and I refreshed multiple times. Wow. Uh Robinhood plans to allocate between 20 and 35% of its IPO shares to its retail customers. That I like. I think that's I cool. love that. Is there anything not to like about that? I mean you, you could give it to Paul Tudor Jones but he's going to flip it. If you give it yeah, to your no, your fans, I, I, they're going to hold it. Yeah. If we accept the 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 situation as it is, yeah, it's probably the right thing to do. Well, what do you mean? What the situation as what is? I mean, I just these, I mean, just this there's a, a whole there's a hot shake right. There's a whole he's like a volcano right. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff here that's scary as an onlooker. Okay, but, the mic is right. Yours. But you know, scare us. Starting with what? I mean, that increase. They're disclosing that their Dogecoin revenues are material. To, I mean, just, they were a third just, of their crypto revenues right, with Dogecoin. Right. So which is hilarious. Wow. I mean. These That's high not, revenue business. It it is. It's very high revenue business. It's just, I, I look. I think relative <laughs> to the other things, people are. I just don't want to offend like five million people here. I just, you know, I think you're being Robin very careful, Ho- right? Yeah, Robin Hood. No, because I've, <laughs> I've touched this particular hot stove before. Um, I'm not going to have the crypto people after me again. Uh, how about this? It, it's it's different this time. Well, like, you don't hate. Do you do, like when Coinbase came out? Were you like vociferously anti Coinbase? Or not really? No, I'm just like, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not against it. I'm not long. I'm not short. I probably won't be long or short Robinhood. And I think that, you know, I, I do think it's good given, you know, and part of this is like I'm friends with, you know, Bill Brewster who had that family member that, you know, you know tragically committed suicide due to the disclosure issue. Um, and so, you know, I've seen like when this stuff goes wrong, like it's not an oopsie daisy to me and these fines are are pathetic and a joke. Yeah. I mean, they go it's like set, it's like in in the FINRA statement which is preposterous. They're like the 70 million dollar fine and then like one line down it's like 7 million or x million uh x million customers, you know, were wrong in some way and it's like what you just said is that the the cost of of violating a customer is like 10 or 15 bucks a customer. Well, um, if this were a different company besides Robinhood, it would have been put out of business. Well, how, right. How, In a different time, different Or company. the CEO would have been – they would have cut his head off. Right. But I think Robinhood has so many private shareholders that actually you would be doing harm to those shareholders if you got rid of Vlad. Like if that were the settlement, that would – because I think a lot of the reason for the success of the company is him. This is insane. Between January 2018 and December 2020, Robin had failed to report to FINRA tens of thousands of written customer complaints. Yeah, nobody else could have done that. Right. I mean, this 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 is the issue is we're in a regulatory environment where the number of violations are so large that the idea of even beginning to enforce laws is like kind of preposterous. Because it's like one – it's kind of like – you know, when people say like, uh, if you owe the bank a million dollars, they own you. It's your it's your problem, right? If you owe them a hundred million dollars, the bank's problem, right? Yeah. It's that, but for regulatory violations. Like, I think you know, when you go back to Uber and Airbnb, there were elements of the business model that were technically illegal, and it was okay. 
and they kind of got away with it at scale and like it doesn't really hurt anybody in that case. But now we're at a point where you've got decabillion dollar companies that are coming public that are just flagrantly succeeding via blatantly disregarding regulations. And it's now happened to such a scale at so many I – mean, we're talking tens of thousands of instances a day. Dude, do you know cases. what happened to Wells Fargo stock the day they paid the biggest settlement ever, the, the last biggest settlement oh, ever? The moon. Stock went right, moon. right. So, so it's not it's the new. shareholders' money paying right. these these settlements. Yeah. What, what what Robin has done is it's created an environment where you've never seen so many investors with so much money move so quickly from right. stock to stock that it is literally affecting the dynamics, not of the stock market, but of markets in the stock right. market, of, of stocks in the stock market. Yeah. yeah, I just find the whole situation generally gross. I'll just say that. And so if you accept, like, setting that aside – I think it's good for people who want to participate that to have a fair shake at the stock. So how many shares are you buying on the, on the uh, IPO? How well, many wait a minute. Wait a minute. 80, $80 billion in assets. I don't know. What's the, reve what's the revenue? Uh, $970 million. So a billion dollars in revenue. Where do they open this thing? 40 times sales? It's a $40 oh. billion dollar company out of the shoot? I mean, it's going to be insane. It's going to be insane. Uh, it's gonna be insane. Uh, last thing on this before we move on. I think 60 or $70 billion. Last thing on this before we move on. People that are about to invest in this, I don't mean trade the stock, H-O-O-D is the proposed ticker. People who are thinking of investing in Robinhood post-IPO, my personal opinion, go look at all the IPOs of online broker-dealers from the late 90s, early 2000s. I understand there were differences. Those were not great stocks. Like none of them long, E-Trade was not great. A lot, first of all, most of them are why merged is, away. Why, I, no, no disrespect. I really want to hear why that's a good comparison. This, it's it's a it's a broker it's a brokerage business primarily stock market with a snazzier technology interface. It's no different than DLJ Direct being spun out of Donaldson Lufkin Genret and just being like, we have a website. Look how exciting we are. That novelty wore off for the ten stocks I can think of off the top of my head. Like none of them went on to become extremely successful. This could be the one that that changes that. I'm just. I think I'm with you. I'm with you, by the way. People I don't should, just, I don't just, so people should understand it. else could do this. <laughs> so what I'm saying is what we said at the beginning, which is invest. Buy it immediately. Um, soapbox, what's something that you think everyone should be paying more attention to or less? I'm using this to just throw out a trillion-dollar idea for asset management. You could shoot it down in two seconds and we could move on. What if we had crossovers? Think of whoever is the best technology investor you know of. What if they Warren Buffett? So Warren Buffett. No, think. Let's say. What if? What if Kathy Wood could go to a billion dollar mutual fund, let's say, mm -hmm. and they have a hundred million of that billion invested in tech? What if like they had a guest star, Kathy Wood's doing the tech portion within the, our fund? Oh, they do that already. No, well, I know there are amalgamated managers and sub advisors, but what if it were celebrity managers who have just. Didn't Matthew Ball it. just launch an ETF with those guys? With I, mean, I feel like we're getting there, right? Yeah. We're, so, we're, so this has already happened. There's like Actually, well, Matthew, that, that was Matthew this week. Ball launched like the Round with Hill Round Metaverse, Hill, the Metaverse ETF. ETF. It's not like a guest star of a sleeve, but he's kind of like the guest star. This name is like in crossovers in in comic books, right? Or like my favorite episodes of Scooby Doo were when like Batman showed up. Right. It's like, wait, what? Like, what's going on here? What if you what if you have a fund where they just announce like for the, what if Jeff Bezos was picking the stock? But, like and that? they tell you the time frame. They go, yeah, 
They go for the next 36 months. He's going to be moonlighting for for the next year. For the next 36 months, Elon Musk is going to be doing all the space-related stocks in our fund. You're telling me like that wouldn't be a crazy money raiser. It would. And then they were like, he's out after three years. So if you want exposure to this celebrity manager in the portfolio, think about the possibilities of doing that with – I don't mean like non-financial celebrities, but relatively well-known, like Bill Miller's doing the crypto in in this fund, right? I don't that, know. Just, that would kill it. It would I mean, kill you it. You have to figure out how to make the regular the compliance work, but it would kill it. I'm gonna call like uh, Jan Van Eck and pitch this to him uh, tomorrow. I'm gonna pitch this to a couple of people. All right, so here, if you any traffic. here's my thing. Uh, Research affiliates did a piece. I'm just gonna guess it's like thirteen thousand words, telling you why cap weighted indexes are dumb. And the T, the TLDR is that the rebalance uh, into Tesla and out of AIV cost investors. Hold on, wait for a drum roll. You guys sitting down? Forty one basis points. What's AIV? I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's the stock that S and P kicked out to yeah. make room for Tesla. Yeah. Cost inv- So what are we doing here? Who cares? That for wait, they're saying. John, scroll down. Just keep scrolling. How long is this piece? It take. It's twenty minutes of read time. To tell you that, uh, I mean, we spent so much time talking about the inclusions, and I understand how companies run up and then they they come back down to earth. But at the end of the day, this has cost investors 41 whole basis points. Who gives a shit? And if, are, if they own Tesla, <laughs> it made them 4x on their money. John's still on their money. There we go. It's over. Isn't that isn't like the point though that you know with any of these the cap weight or whatever? If if you f- like, who is reading a 20 minute read? quantitative analysis. I just don't understand where the customer Michael is. Where the, where the customer, I mean, Michael is a couple people there, but like if, if, a, if an equal weighted version of this is going to get you to stick to your investment plan, fine. then you probably should yeah, just, just do it right. Like, but like who is the market for people who actually care about equal weighted versus cap weighted versus whatever. It's like the three of us, Corey, uh, Nick. Larry Swedro. Yeah. Nick Majuli. Yeah. I don't know. I probably know them all. O'Shaughnessy, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like six it's, people. It's not a deep. Pool. I'll give you both O'Shaughnessys. I'll yeah, throw those two yeah. in. Okay, Get for free. All right, so let's not spend any more time on that. What's your uh, what's your soapbox, Dan? I think everybody needs to spend less time thinking about anything. That's my my big thing. I, I love this. Too many can takes. You, can you can you expound on this take? I really don't think I have anything to add. I just think there's too many takes, and I think you know nothing that's happening right now is that impactful. Everybody should go see their family. Are I, you are you practicing this? No. So no. I am. Yeah. I have been now for 13 months. Yeah, you've been off the uh, Twitter. I, I canceled myself 13 months ago, and my life improved, like, markedly. I now have a six-pack um, <laughs> in the fridge. <laughs> now my relationship with people in the real world is better. I'm not preoccupied by what some asshole thinks about something somewhere else. I don't follow politics at all. I can't. Be- I don't even know who the president is right now. Apparently, That's there fantastic. was. Apparently, there was some sort of a kerfuffle over the ballots. I don't even know who. Like I, I'm practicing what you're saying, and I agree. My so my big thing the last year, you know, a lot of my friends had family members that got sick or passed away, or you know, things like you know, everybody kind of either went through some stuff or knew people that went like through some real stuff. shit in real, real life, real real stuff, right? Yeah. And I'm listening to these people you know, talk when, you know, they might be on their deathbed or they're, they're near it. And I'm listening to their stories about their life and they're, you know, you know they tell you one story and it's like, okay, me and my friends, we went hiking and then it immediately started raining and the tent was fucking ripped and da, da, da. And it's just this, it's, everything goes wrong. And they're laughing their ass off while, oh, while yeah. it's happening, right? 
and they're just like, oh my gosh, and it was we we were such idiots, and then da 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 da. Even if something bad happened to them, and then there's these other stories, and the other stories are like, well, you know, I met this girl, and I thought we were really in love, and I thought it was maybe special, but. I maybe had this job opportunity and then this other thing happened, this other thing happened. I never really did anything with it and I tried to go back, but it was really complicated and da, da, da. And, and I'm listening to how they're telling it and the like the pain in the voice and the pain in the whole thing is that they spent a huge amount of their life just kind of considering all these situations. They didn't do anything. Regret. Uh, it was It's regret, but the regret is is wasting time and kind of contemplation of these like middling or yeah. bad decisions versus like the other ones where we went and we did a thing it didn't turn well but we just went and did things and so what I'm what I'm really trying to do and I'm and I'm not good at it yet is try to basically force rank my life where I'm like what are the actual five or you know let's what are the five things that I actually want to do and what's amazing is if you actually say these are the five things I want to do I want to spend time with my family I want to get in better shape I want to read I want whatever it is you know I want to drink a six pack every day I mean you can have whatever it is but if you actually just set out to do the five things you care about, there's no time left in the day, right? You can't stare at your phone if you're going to do that each right. day. No way. And you're just the, – the, the phone is designed to just eat your eat your mind. And so I'm trying to – That's the profit center is getting you to keep looking at it. Right. So I'm trying to just deliberately – like I didn't know about the Warren and Munger thing because I just – close my media off at different points of the day. And like I have times where I'm trying to make sure that I'm only going to Twitter or something like that if I'm going to use it as a tool or if I've already allocated time for it. But I'm trying to make sure it's not like something like you picture you know, his calendar. Dan's Twitter, dance Twitter time. I, I mean I literally have Twitter time on my calendar. What what color on Google Calendar do you I think make I, that? I think it's purple. Fuchsia. Uh yeah. And um <laughs> No, what is Dan's Twitter to, time? Because I'll put my hottest shit up then. There, yeah. No, I mean, it's, your usually, next session. it's usually like four o'clock. Like I'll go in there for 20 minutes after the market closes or something. You know what's the ultimate don't waste your fucking time with this? Clubhouse. Way, way more oh, yeah. so than Twitter. I really don't like this idea of people trying to make really important industry moving conversations impromptu. I think it's really kind of in a philosophical – it's like kind of violent because they're like – Oh, you have a family? Fuck you. Listen oh, now, because wait till you hear. Right. Yeah. You you will do what Andreessen Horowitz tells you to do. <laughs> when, right? when, we t- when we tell you to do it. And I really don't like that model. And I thought it was really flagrant how they were attempting to kind of like – they were really trying to force it a few weeks ago or a few months ago. And I, I just found it kind of gross. And so I'm, I'm, an, I'm a pass on that. I've done a couple of spaces when that's what my friend's doing them. But Mike, the, well, again, Mike and Ben do spaces. They do it though very deliberately for their fans. Right. For um, animal spirits. Yeah, we're not trying to break any uh, earth-shattering news. We're talking about right. – we're, we're, we're scheduling we're, it though. We're, we're talking about my Rogaine experience. No, but like, you, you're not like randomly like, oh, shit, no, here we no, come. No, like you're no. telling people this is when we do it. Yeah. Right. So I think I think that's the right way to do that. Yeah. I, so, I, you know, anyway, my, my soapbox is like I think people need to just you know figure out what you actually care about. Do those things. Don't care about this other stuff. The rest of the stuff, it doesn't help you to care about it. And most of the time, somebody's like, somebody tells you they care about something. It's like, really, what did you do, what did you do about it? And they're like, oh, well, I support this. I'm like, really? In what way? In what way? Besides the, oh, besides you tweeted. The tweet. Oh, you attacked people you don't know and you have no context about because you support that. Yeah. Well, I'm like, you know, several of the people that you follow had six charity events in the last three months. You went to none of them. Right. How do you support it again? Like, it's just all this, like, nonsense of people, like, you know, People just need to kind of, you know, not even shut up, but just like go actually do stuff. Right now, you're allowed out of your house for the first time, whatever. Go do things. Go see your family. Go have a good time. Go on a bad date. Do whatever you got to do. 
Like, don't waste your time. Stop just paying around. attention to all the everyone's opinions. I'm right. with. I'm with you on it. Um, let's keep moving. We're gonna go to. We're gonna end. Best things you read, watched, listened to, etc. Uh, I'm gonna pitch the Wolfgang Puck doc on Disney Plus, which just popped up last week. Did you guys get a chance to watch it yet? Mm-mm. I saw a bit of it. I, I love him, by the way. You, he's Michael, you will love this. Why? Because he, it's he's an, a man. He's yeah, dude. It's an entrepreneur story. It's like it's about it's about launching something that no one else has launched before. It's not like he was the ninth celebrity chef. They invented the term. It made no sense either. That was ridiculous. Chefs were thought of as cooks. Like, it's like the only other thing I've heard of it that's like it is is like Arnold, like the Bill Burr, Burr, Bill Burr bit about Arnold Schwarzenegger where he's like, I'm going to go to America and be a bodybuilder. Right. There was like, no such what? thing. <laughs> right. So and he I, made it happen. But here's what I really loved. The footage that they're showing while he's talking about launching Spago and everything is like early, late 80s, early 90s Hollywood. This is just before the internet. And I think it's the end of when there were actual famous people who, like, had lives that you didn't know about. Right. Like, when you saw Tom Hanks pop up, like, footage of him in a tuxedo, like, he didn't tweet two hours before that he just ate Chipotle. Right. Like, they <laughs> they really seem like bigger stars. Yeah. Even now, looking at that archival footage in the doc. So I loved all that stuff. Um, oh, this was the best quote from it. Wolfgang Puck's mentor said— you're going to have many opportunities, but opportunities are just like trains in a train station. You have to grab and hop on one and hopefully it takes you in the right direction. I thought that was a really good way of thinking about like all of the decisions that you have to make. Like you just hope that you're grabbing the one that's going, right. which I think we we all agree uh, uh, Wolfgang Puck did. All right. That's all I got on that. Bannock. Mr. Bannock. Okay. Dan, you go first. All right. Um, I'm going to think of one while you go. Yeah, I got, I got, I got three. One, I finally got around to watching Ted Lasso, which everybody was saying to watch during quarantine, and I just saw a poster, and I was like, I don't get it. And then I finally watched, it, and I was like, this is the greatest thing I've seen in years. It's, it's on Apple first, TV. Yeah, it's the first optimistic piece of media I've seen in a long time, and it was one of the things you watch, and you're like, you know, I, I'm from Virginia, and I'm like, how did I forget all of this stuff? Like, did New York just beat this out of me? Um, and what it's just, not being cynical about everything that you come across? Just yeah, and he just he just he's basically just nice to the point where he melts people's cynicism with just continued good personness. It's Jason Sudeikis. Is he from? Why is he from there? He's well. He he's he spent a period of his life in Oklahoma, which is where the character's from. So okay. he, the accent's pretty good. Um, the premise is it's American football coach who gets hired to go coach an English soccer team, and basically everybody is a brutally cynical, um, normal. 2021 person right and he just believes in everybody and is really positive and that doesn't sound that attractive but it's it's just done so well um it's like something like forrest gump or something like that yeah, uh, yeah. for the modern for the I, th- I think the the non-cynical aspect is spot on like yeah. he's just nice i watch it and he's like uh, duncan when you think about it yeah he, he's just yeah exactly he's just nice and it was you know that's your don't laugh you know that's your rap right like the nice the nicest person in the firm he's like I got a mean side. You'll see. It was right. it was nice. Yeah, I'm to glad watch. you feel that way. No, you, that like that's the that's the wrap on you. All right, what do you got? Um, I think that. Do you watch Dave? Oh yeah, but I the first episode was weird. The was first second, of season one, of season two. Oh okay. So I I really think he's a genius. Like he I is. I really do. I think he's like Larry David, but thirty years younger, and he might be too smart. 
like not just is he like just so funny and such a I mean the rapping stuff was he's talented whatever but like just the way that he writes the show the way right. that the the first episode came full circle at the end and with each of the subsequent episodes and episode three is the craziest shit I've ever seen oh I haven't seen two I'm not gonna, three I won't spoil yeah. it you but still he's just, haven't given me your uh, Hulu password I'll, I'll do it tonight I'm um, still waiting on that I just I'm just blown away by him and it's 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 cool to watch somebody so talented him and um and then the other thing I I was gonna say was that the Bo Burnham special on Netflix Inside. Dave and and Bo Burnham are both like this, I guess, new generation where they can play every instrument, write all kinds of music, do the marketing, do the graphics, do the digital, do the marketing, do the – and they can do it off the top of their head and they can write it. I mean it, these people are so insanely talented. I don't want – I want to know what lab they made them in so I can get remade in one. I mean it's crazy how talented these people are and so both those shows are fantastic. Well, it's, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Like – the guy Bo Burnham basically had to do it that way. So if you, if you have something that you're dying to get out there and there's no mechanism to get it out there, like you you will find a way. I mean, I just tweeted. This guy <laughs> made like 15 studio-grade music videos and some insanely good songs. In fairness, your tweets were pretty spicy. That's true. Pretty, they were pretty caliente. <laughs> All right. We're going uh, to wrap up there. We appreciate uh, Dan coming by. And uh, I got to tell you, I think like of all the people that I've met on financial media over the years, like you're definitely uh, one of the more thoughtful, funnier, uh, et cetera. All the, all the compliments I could, I could, I could drop Mustache-ier. here. Mustachier. Nice guys. One of the yeah, most I mean. mustachey people I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we want to send you guys to ironshop.com if you want official Compound and Friends merchandise. You got Animal Spirit stuff up there too. I think is the most popular actually is the new whale shirt killing it. On the orders? I'm, I'm actually not sure. I, I've seen it sell a lot, but I'm right. not sure what's the most popular. All right, we'll check that out. Guys, watch clips from this podcast and others at our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash the compound RWM. And if you love investing podcasts, good news. In addition to the compound and friends, you have a new episode of Animal Spirits every week. So, all right, thanks, guys. We will talk to you next time. Was that fun? That was fun. All right, we got to get a picture. 100%. And turtlenecks. Yeah, but we can't be, like, looking like we know it's weird that we're in turtlenecks. Thanks again to our sponsor, Masterworks. Go to masterworks.io slash compound for more information.